Hello, I'm Matt Pryor of the Get Up Kids, and this is Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets, where we tell the oral history of the label by the artists, fans, and insiders. In this episode, we're going to tell the story of Alkaline Trio. From the rough and tumble streets of Chicago, Alkaline Trio was already an established punk force to be reckoned with by the time they signed to Vagrant. We were friends from the Fireside Bowl days, and we were excited to hear they were coming on board. I talked to singer and guitarist Matt Skiba about this. P.S. The other voice you'll hear is the super producer of this podcast, Jesse Cannon. So what what was the impetus for you guys coming to Vagrant in the initially from leaving? Was it Asian Man that put out the first record? They put, yeah, Asian Man, uh, uh, Mike Park put out our first record. And, you know, working with Mike or any of the, the we worked with Johan Space in Chicago. And that was, we, we went to friends of ours that had record labels. And um, Mike was, you know, Dan had been, Slapstick was on Asian we always kind of went where anyone would take us. You know, we, it was never like really a choice. Um, it was just the only choices we had. So Vagrant was the first time where we talked to labels, you know, plural. Honestly, what made us most interested with about Vagrant was that the Get Up Kids were on Vagrant. Really? Why? Because we're all huge fans of your band. Oh, and oh. we thought... Okay. We, we, there was a lot of, I, I mean, bigger at that time, no motive, maybe. Um, mm-hmm. There was stuff that, that um, I wasn't familiar with, but we figured if it's good enough for the ghetto kids, it's good enough for us. And um, <laughs> I can't remember if, you know, we, we were interested. And, and you guys were also, you know, a band where they came from the same place we did, you know, from a, uh, playing in a band with your friends to having, you know, worldwide success and it becomes your career. Uh, everything that you guys had done up to that point was like, you know, we were kind of doing in, in lockstep behind you. You were like our uh, big brothers. So, when, you know, in a band we had, we adored. So it really, honestly, it was if it's good enough for them, it's definitely good enough for us. And it, they turned out to be rad guys, you know, Rich and John impressed us. And so did uh, Chris and meeting all you guys only vibe that was there um you know definitely uh clinched the deal who did you rec- who made who'd you record from here to infirmary with we recorded with matt allison and we did it out at pachyderm studios where nirvana did in utero mm-hmm. with albini and um you know we just we we wanted to take matt we wanted to get away from his depressing ass studio in in chicago um <laughs> you know it's just like that place and and god bless matt he's he's a he's an awesome guy and a, and a really good friend of the band to this day um, you know feels like a, a member of the band almost um and still comes to shows and stuff but matt record recorded all the trio uh stuff uh and still does we made a record with him a couple of whatever a few years ago but um you know recently in our in the span of our record making career it was recently and we worked at his newer less depressing studio in chicago but still compared to pachyderm i think anywhere is depressing that place is beautiful out in the middle of nowhere out in the middle of nowhere and outside of minneapolis it's like 40 minutes outside of the city in the wilds of, of uh, minnesota and uh there it's just gorgeous how long were you guys out there how long did that record take i think we were out there for maybe three three and a half weeks or something maybe four weeks at the most yeah three three little over three weeks i don't know how i remember that but i do i guess it was just a, a big time for us and it was there our first time working on like a knee board and working out in 
um, you know, at that at that point, we started learning a little bit about recording and oh, and Jerry Finn mixed that record. Okay, so that was our first time working with Jerry. Um, I was like, what am I forgetting? Yeah, Finn mixed that for like Peanut. Um, and I remember it got out like he, you know, Jerry would do favorite like the Smoking Popes did a record with him, and they, you know, it took um, you know, went extensive pains to make the best record they could, and Jerry just donated a lot of his time, like bands that he loved and believed in he would do for you know pennies on the dollar because usually those bands are, are were um you know not huge you know yeah. they weren't green day or whatever there were a number of bands that he would give these great deals to but on on the dl and bands were calling him asking for the alkaline trio deal um oh really yeah, there were like these victory bands. I can't remember what band it was, but um, whatever. Yeah, but Jerry Jerry did a, a number of solids, but that was the first one mixing that record for like 10 grand or some six grand. He's someone I, we always, we never got a chance to work with, but we always want to because we were so in love with that super drag record. That, yeah, I was going to say super that, drag, like of the bands he worked with that he, and he made like a million dollar record on, you know, a few grand. That record's so good. Such it's so sick. Yeah, the one with the headphones on the cover. <laughs> yeah, and you know Jerry's a Jerry. Uh, I talk about him in the in the present tense, but he's a big uh, uh, Get Up Kids fan. Oh wow! Huge. Oh, damn, that's too um, bad. So he would. Uh, I remember when we signed to Vagrant, he said that he he would wanted to work with your band, and then uh, he died unfortunately. Yeah. But um, but yeah, we're lucky we got to big. Uh, and then the the next two albums were with them producing. So it- this is how I remember. This is, tell me if this is correct in your memory, but I remember from here to infirmary coming out and you guys just exploding and like, like because you you were you know you were a punk band from Chicago. You were our we thought of you you know we're our contemporaries and stuff. Like you know we both have the same you know love and got starts at the fireside you know and and stuff like that. And so like I felt very like uh, like I understood where you guys were coming from and. I'm not saying I, I didn't when that when Infirmary came out, but it just it seemed like it like kind of blew up overnight. Do you think that that is an accurate way to describe it, or do you? Because people love that record. That yeah, I, that that record um, definitely it felt like like in the middle of the night someone woke us up. It wasn't even overnight. It was like uh, we we put that when that record came out. I think we played the first shows from it in England, and we were playing. They had to move the venues, and and uh, we'd never even heard of such a thing. You know, this is before uh-huh. we'd toured with Blink or been around any kind of like stage. You know, we we saw Green Day on TV. That was about it. You know, uh, but we or you know, we bands like you guys were already blo- huge, but we weren't there to see it. So for us, it was just like uh, we, when we got to London and there was like a, a press conference waiting for us and all this crazy stuff that we'd never done before. Going to the Krang Awards, we're just like, what the hell? Where are we? What is this? And then when we came back to the states, um, our they, you know the sniping campaigns and everything. Like I remember, New York was just covered in our stuff. And the shows also got bumped up in the States. So it, it happened really fast. I always forget about that. I remember hearing about you guys getting written up in Kerrang! a lot and how like Kerrang! loved you guys so much. And I was like, Kerrang! The fucking, the metal magazine? Like, I was so like... Yeah, that's what I thought too. Because we'd never, you know, that was our first time there. But that was the other thing. We were on the cover of Kerrang! when we got there. <laughs> that's as a, We're as just a, like... 
our first Kerrang! interview, we did a cover. It was me and it was Aaron from... Uh, Icarus Line. Icarus Line. It was Aaron from Icarus Line and me and uh, someone else. It wasn't you, but it was like uh, one of our contemporaries is you. Yeah. So eloquently put it. That's the, what I, the word I was trying to find before. But it was for a cover. And that was the first Kerrang! interview we did. And I remember they told Danny, um, they, they said something that Dan looked like. He looked like he was better suited in a butcher shop in Chicago than on a oh. rock stage yeah and like i thought it was a cool thing and i think they yeah, might it's have like a work, it's like a working it. class compliment <laughs> you know, like it's yeah it's like i thought it was cool. i thought it was like kind of peg boy kind of like badass and yeah. but that's i don't think that's what they meant and dan <laughs> certainly didn't take it like that so um grand opening grand closing that was like the last time dan ever did a Kerrang interview so you guys toured like a ton for that record right because then you had the vagrant tour in there or did, did you guys actually do the vagrant tour or did you just play in like chicago we did we did the vagrant tour we did um uh like a month of it or maybe more um some of it was with face to face and then um uh the other half was us headlining with autumn to ashes and something else but yeah we did the tour for at least a, a month of it like half the country i, I think could be wrong it, it was if it wasn't it was more i remember i because we only played the the dates in chicago and i remember it was just really like getting to hang out with you guys in your hometown so in during that time though like were were like your guys's singles like on the radio properly like were you getting onto like rock radio not really i mean we okay. we asked you know s the d and um did the dance but it, it you know it got from you know premiered places like i remember we did um love line uh-huh. uh, uh, and that was another kind of like we we were like we were walking into the studio and Marilyn Manson's like walking out with another like what are we like what are we doing here I can't believe they even let us in the building much less ha- we're the guests like it was or being on Letterman or any of that kind of stuff like Letterman happened or any kind of late night TV we did Conan and Letterman and it, within the same month we also had Steve nasty little man Steve as our publicist Steve Martin yeah so Steve's just a gangster I mean that guy is uh, and uh-huh. we're still Still, still really tight but i mean he, he had so much to do with our blowing up for sure like steve was instrumental in he had friends and all you know at rolling stone or at all these late night places that um he's just got great relationships because he's a great guy and uh and he, he utilized that tool uh in spades for our first record it was crazy i think it was also a point in time and jesse tell me if you think this is true or not that like some of our like people who grew up in this the scene that we come from started to get like real jobs in the industry and, and wanted- nasty little man if you think of it as somebody who grew up in new york was all my friends who i went to see get up kids with at cbgb's all were working at nasty little man when they were working that record they really wanted bands like us and bands like Trio to succeed. He was an agnostic front. I mean, he's a punk, you know, like he's, 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 he's got heart and he's slept on the couch and he knows like he's one of us, but you know, he's, he's also this mogul and this really, you know, it's amazing. They like the, giving those punk rock kids jobs and like rad jobs that pay a lot. And, you know, you fly, fly around business class to see bands play. It doesn't suck. <laughs> That's so wild. It's like, so, oh, we're 22 and like showing up to work drunk. Yeah. And they just, you know, 
they just uh, make a bloody mary for you there at the office well you know you gotta gotta clock in but uh sorry matt what were you gonna say i just think about like that time and it's just so so much just like crazy stuff was happening that i think all of us were just like wait what like whether it's like venues having to be you know shows having to be moved to a bigger venue or like getting to play on tv or like go filming like you were saying about like love line like we went to trl one time and it was like britney spears was leaving i remember when you guys were on trl that was you know that was like that was the shit you guys you guys were all over the radio and you guys like landed the thing well it's just it's just such a it it, it's just and i think you you probably come from because i think dan i know dan and i have talked about it but like we never like were gunning for any of that like we you know what i mean like when we started our bands it was sort of like we just want to play music with our friends and like you know, go on tour. Yeah, and, me, and, and, me and Dan had a company. Me and Dan, you know, um, we were friends long before uh, we played in the band together. So we were going to shows and stuff. But when we when he joined Alkaline Trio, and actually when the band really gelled, uh, we were at a Super Chunk show and it was like sold out at Lounge Axe, I think. Like 500 people just packed in there and it's just a killer show. And for us, that was like as big as a band could get. Yeah. You know, like we didn't even think about TV or anything. And our goal was like, if we could do anything, like if we could do half of this in every big city across the country, that would be like, you know, striking gold. So yeah, it was, um, it was also the first time that those things I think were happening to bands like ours that weren't huge, but were tasting that sort of success or that, you know, entering that arena. Mm -hmm. Totally. I, you know, and a lot, a lot of different like milestones, like getting to tour on a bus and stuff like that. And just, and then people being like, what you sell out? You got a bus and like, fuck you. I'm, I'm paying for it. <laughs> you know, like it's not free, but it's also, you know, like we, we, our first bus tour, we played at Gilman street and, um, uh, how'd you pull that off? We just parked the bus like two blocks away. But, but, we, but we, like, everyone, knew, everyone knew it was ours. So the, we went back there and played again and we just parked right. In, actually, no, the first time we parked right in front. And then the second time we felt a, a little more shitty about it. So we like parked around the corner at least. So the thing wasn't like, like outside the club all night, people like spray painting it. But I remember feeling this immense amount of satisfaction because like Billy Joe and like AFI guys, all these people were in this article talking about how sucky it was that they got like basically you know kicked out of the punk scene there and alkaline trio just comes along and parks their bus in front of gilman like what the fuck it was and it was in rolling stone i was like yes <laughs> one to nothing motherfucker no it was it wasn't because they were upset but it was like holy shit like it made that much of a racket like Billy got in his car and like drove by Gilman just to see it. I'm like, hell yeah, dude. Um, so yeah, that, that was the bus thing was a big one too. I so okay, <laughs> that's such because I had heard that you guys did that and I was like, because I'd never got to play there and it was one of those uh ones I always wanted to, but by the time we had you know, by the time we were like working with Ellis or whatever, they already had told us to fuck off. Um, but then it's just like but then that, to me, too, is just kind of like, wait a minute. How come the fucking trio gets to just be successful and have punk credibility at the same time? Like, you're not allowed to have both of those things, at least not at a time. Yeah, I, uh, we, but, you know, it's like when we signed to Asian Man, we got shit for being sellouts. It's like we learned, as I'm sure you guys did early on, it's like you... Uh, no matter what you do, you're a sellout. But no matter what you do, the same people that say that buy your record and listen to it. <laughs> Can't please everyone. Come to your show and shake your hand. During the touring of From Here to Infirmary, the band went through a spinal tap's worth of drummers before Derek Grant finally joined the band. I spoke to Derek about how this came to be. So, 
were you in the band proper when they signed to? I I'm a little cloudy on because I feel like did they sign to Vagrant and then you joined the band? Yeah, before the because you played on Infirmary, didn't you? No, that, I actually did the tour for Infirmary or most of the touring for Infirmary. But Mike Fellamly was uh, played drums on the record. He had only been in the band. Glenn, the original drummer, they did. Um, the record previous, the record before Infirmary was Maybe I'll Catch Fire, which was on Asian Man Records. And they had recorded that with the original drummer, Glenn, who I think parted ways with the band before there was any proper touring for that record. So Mike came on board because they, Mike used to play in, uh, or still he does now, but he used to play in Smoking Popes. That was one of their favorite bands. They loved his drumming. So it was like, you know, really exciting to get him on board. But they toured Maybe I'll Catch Fire with Mike playing drums. They did Infirmary and maybe a little bit of touring and and it just wasn't working out, you know, just, just more, I, I think it was more just personal, personal issues. I don't think Mike wanted to tour quite as much. The band, you know, the other guys wanted to, and, and, and being on a, a bigger label, I mean, Vagrant was, it was um, somewhat early in the Vagrant lexicon or whatever the Vagrant's history, but, uh, but, you know, it was definitely a step up from Asian Man Records. I think there was more expectations, you know, on the band. They, they did their first proper video. They were starting to get some radio play. And so, yeah, you know, there was, there was, expectations to to tour the record well and i i don't think that was i think that was a little bit beyond what mike wanted to do so when they parted ways with him they considered uh, didn't adam from rocket play with them for a minute yeah so i, I think initially the the idea was, and this goes back to my initial connection with, with Vagrant Records, which was through Face to Face. So anyways, in 19, I think it was 1997, Face to Face had just, uh, they, were, they were touring for their self-titled record, which was on A&M. And I was in the Suicide Machines at the time. And Suicide Machines, we, we did a, a tour where we were opening for Face to Face. And that's how I met those guys. And we got along really well on the tour. Shortly after that tour, I left the Suicide Machines. And fast forward, I think about two years, 1999, Face to Face had now signed a Vagrant. Rich Egan was managing them as well. And they put out a record called Ignorance is Bliss. And Chad, who was the guitar player for Face to Face, there was some falling out. Or again, maybe he, he didn't want to tour as much. But they, they were looking for a replacement for Chad. So I got a phone call from Trevor and uh, Trevor Keith. And uh, he called me up. And it's, it's a little fuzzy, but... Um, basically he just said, Hey, you know, we just put out this new record. We have this record coming out. Chad's not going to tour it. So, you know, we need, we need, or no, he didn't say Chad. He didn't mention Chad, which is what makes this whole thing so ridiculous and funny. So he just said, we, we need somebody to do this tour. So he sent me a CD of the songs and I learned, you know, I, I just kind of studied it basically. I just kind of, you know, l learned the drum parts. The guitar player left until they hired a new drummer. Well, okay. So this, this is the thing. He, there was no mention of Chad, I think, in the conversation. I believe he just said, we need somebody to do the tour. And I assumed that that meant drums. So I uh, went about studying the stuff and learning it, learning the drum parts. And about a week before I was supposed to go out to L.A. to do rehearsals, Trevor calls again and he says, hey, I just figured we should go over the, you know, who's playing what. And at that point, I was, I was confused because I was like, well, I'm playing drums, right? Like, what is there two drummers? Like, what's going on? So he's like, oh, no, no, it's you know, Chad. It's not playing. He's not going to do the tour. So we, you're playing guitar, which was a shock to me because I had never really played guitar in a band before. What? What? I would sometimes grab a guitar uh, at soundcheck with the Suicide Machines on that on that face to face tour, and I would just kind of mess around, play like a Kiss song or something. And um, I guess that had got their attention, and that's why I came up in, in conversation when they were looking for somebody to take Chad's place. 
But this information wasn't given to me until a week before I was headed out to L.A. for rehearsals. So I didn't have a guitar at the time. And the house that I was living in, I was living with, living with my buddy Eric at the time. And in the basement, I think there was like really cheap, like Toys R Us guitar. It had a built in speaker. It was missing a string or two. So that's what I, I, I learned this, the stuff on. I learned, you know, that record uh, on this, you know, this beat up old guitar that wouldn't stay in tune. And then I get out to L.A. and, you know, Trevor gives me one of his like Les Pauls. I've got like a Marshall and then like a matchless combo, you know, and I've got some effects pedals. Cause that, that record was a bit of a departure for them. There was a lot of like delays and stuff on the guitar, you know, it's, it was uh, a little outside their, their, their normal, uh, you know, realm. And so it was very overwhelming and kind of a trial by fire because I think we rehearsed for four or five days and then went to Japan. So yeah, it was, it was a weird experience. That record wasn't a favorite among the fans at the time. I heard stories. Joey Carenza actually came to work guitar tech for us right after that tour. And he was just like, woof. Yeah, it was, it was a rough time. I mean, Japan was, was one thing because, you know, I think Japanese music fans are, are, a little bit more open-minded and accepting than, totally. than in other, other parts of the country. So that wasn't so bad, but, you know, we did some stuff in the States, I think mainly radio shows, you know, radio festivals. And, uh, you know, I, I could see the frustration, you know, Trevor was definitely uh, taking it pretty hard that, you know, we would, we would be playing shows uh, in the States and, you know, there would be like a wall of people in the, in the crowd, just giving us the finger and like through any new song that we played, it would just be this wall of like middle fingers. And then we'd play something from, you know, one of, one of the older records and they would, you know, there'd be a huge circle pit. And then, Oh, here's another new song. Middle fingers would come up again. I mean, it was, it, it was pretty extreme and, and rough, but for me, you know, already feeling really awkward and just, just playing guitar and just, you know, with the whole situation, it was definitely an uncomfortable tour. So, but, but, um, you know, I was grateful for the experience. Like it was really kind of helped me grow and be more confident as a guitar player. So on that tour in Japan, Alkaline Trio was opening. So, and I had known Dan from Slapstick when I was with the Suicide Machines. I mean, we'd played shows together. I didn't know Matt that well. And Glenn, actually, the, the, the original drummer was in the band at the time. So, uh, but that was the first time that I got to see Alkaline Trio. The first time I got to hear Alkaline Trio. And I was really, really into it. Like, I, I thought it was great. And, um, you know, even kind of, I guess, in the back of my head, I wasn't really looking to be in a band at that time because I had kind of a, a rough experience with the Suicide Machines towards towards the end of my time with them. So I was, I was taking a step away from from being in bands, but watching Alkaline Trio and then, you know, going home after that and, you know, I was li- sort of listening to the, the records. I kind of had this thought in the back of my head that I was like, yeah, you know, this if I would join this band, like not really interested in joining any bands right now. But like if, if Alkaline Trio asked me. I would. So because of this thing with with face to face, you know, I was kind of now on Vagrant's radar on Rich Egan's radar. So fast forward to when uh, things weren't working out, you know, the, the band was uh, touring for from here to infirmary. Alkaline Trio was touring with touring for from here to infirmary. When things weren't working out with Mike Fellamley, I think the initial suggestion from Rich was to have Pete Parada, who was playing drums for Face to Face, uh, have Pete be the new drummer for the band. And I don't know if that would have meant him leaving Face to Face or if it was just a double duty thing. But uh, he was tied up doing stuff with Face to Face. And Rich gave me a call, actually. And I don't know that I had met Rich, so it was a little weird. Uh, but yeah, Rich called me up and he said, um, would you be interested in, in playing drums for one of, one of my bands? And I said, well, that really depends on who, who it is. You know, like I can't say yes, you know, to just any any band that's on your label or whatever. So 
it, it was it was a little weird. He was being really secretive, and he's like, "Well, I can't really tell you. Let me call you back." Why and was he being so secretive about it? I I don't know. I, I mean, it. I guess I never really thought about it. I mean, it's it's very possible that the band hadn't had the talk with Mike yet. So somebody not fired yet? That would be my guess. I guess I never really thought to question it. But yeah, I mean, it just might have been a matter of, you know, it wasn't really, uh, you know, the Internet wasn't really, you know, like it is today at the time. So it's not, you know, it's not like I, I would have posted something, you know, right. about internet and it would have gotten around or anything like that but it's understandable that in a situation like that where things aren't working out with a member of a band that yeah you might want to keep things kind of on the you know on the down low till until everything's worked out but but anyways rich called me back you know i think a few days later and he was like okay well you know uh I talked to talk to the band or whatever. And so anyways, it's Alkaline Trio. And he sort of explained the, you know, a bit of the story to me. And again, I, I had this in my head from years before that this this would be the, the band that I would join. So it, yeah, it just it just made perfect sense. So uh I agreed, but I already had obligations to do some shows with the Vandals. And I was also playing with a, a Detroit band called Walls of Jericho at the time. So and I wasn't I was just filling in for Walls of Jericho, but we had planned, you know, we had a couple of shows booked. Uh, and I had like a tour with the Vandals. So, you know, I was like, yeah, I'd love to do it, but I can't do it, you know, for another month or two. And I think this was around maybe June of 2001. So the band was about to, uh, Alkaline Trio was about to uh, do this. I think it was one of the Vagrant tours. So they asked, that's where they asked Adam to fill in, Adam Willard. So he did that tour with them. I did the shows that I had, you know, the obligations that I had. And then, you know, took the train to Chicago and we started rehearsing and it just just went really well i mean there was no real discussion about like you know am i in the band or anything it just it just felt good i think to everybody and uh you know we would kind of volley between me i would go to chicago for rehearsal one week and then you know a couple weeks later they would come to detroit and we'd do a rehearsal kind of went back and forth like that and then eventually i you know i moved to chicago just to you know so i could do it you know full time just make it easier and uh and that was that man it just kind of kind of worked out now that Derek was in the band, they were out for blood. They toured that record into the ground, and the world took notice. So you guys toured a lot on From Here to Infirmary, right? I mean, were, or had they already done a bulk of that touring before you? They did. I think they might have done one, one loop around the States, but they had never done anything out of the country outside of that one Japanese tour face-to-face that was in, like I said, like 1999. Um, so during the, the first tour that, that I did with the band, which I think might've been, I think we did some stuff in the States and then we did feel like we might've done warp tour or part of warp tour, uh, in 2002, uh, like at the beginning of 2002 or something. But we, at some point got word that infirmary was doing really well in the UK. And I think might, might've gotten like a silver, you know, silver status or something like that for record sales. So we we went over to the UK, you know, for the first time. It was the first time uh, they had been over there, and yeah, it was. I mean, it was huge. It was it was like a crazy, very unexpected, and very um, yeah, just very exciting. So I think for the rest of 2002, there was a lot of like, you know, I think we we did another US run, maybe some Canadian shows, and then went back to the UK. I think we did you know, Reading and Leeds. So yeah, it was, it was, it was really exciting. And, and yeah, we just toured and toured and toured, you know, and then it just rolled right into, you know, working on the next record and, you know, it was, everything happened pretty quick, but, uh, but, you know, we were all in positions at that time, you know, none of us were married. 
we and we were all able to just kind of go as 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 hard as we needed to go, and that's what we did. Yeah, totally. I always say rock and roll is a young man's game. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, a well, young, I mean, I, young we, person's yeah, I game. Like I guess I couldn't tour like that now if 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 I wanted to. You know. After the touring finally slowed down, it was time to make a new record, but a darkness was setting in. Here's Skiba. What's the mindset going into good, the Good Morning record? Because you made that one with Finn. Is that, did you make that in LA? We did, yeah. Okay. That one, that was a rough record for me. I, I was having some, some personal issues. Like I was just drinking like a fish, but not like fun drinking, you know, like just hung over and in a dark ass place over a girl and just it, it, and I wasn't a um a resident of Los Angeles then it was just kind of a this town where like everything happened and I just happened to be there I didn't know anyone I didn't you know like uh it was a, it was definitely like uptown problems for sure but they were you know it it, it was something that um cast a shadow over that the whole recording process um i think uh the going into it we had you know we worked really hard with finn on pre-production everything and it's like we did uh we've made a great record i think uh i just i wish i could re-sing it but everybody seems to really dig it the way it is so i guess uh i'm thankful for the for the shadow but um keith morris sang on the record that was like the first time we had like a uh well, it was one of the only times we had a, um, somebody come in and cameo on the record. And I remember Keith Morris coming in to sing his, his small but really important part on the, what was to be the single. And Jerry Finn being such a huge Black Flag fan and Circle Jerks fan, but Keith Morris' Black Flag was Jerry's end-all, be-all, like his house is covered in um, Raymond Pettibone art and stuff and he was so i mean the dudes worked with green day or like worked with all these huge bands but he was too uh what do you call it um starstruck starstruck to tell keith he's like i can't tell keith what to do so jerry was like pushing the you know or the engineer was pushing buttons and jerry was just kind of blood like you know flush in the corner it was the, <laughs> it was the coolest thing ever because you know it was very like beautiful and human but like jerry was just so starstruck i don't i mean he met keith but he was like a nervous like you know little teenage girl before he came in there it was pretty awesome that's really funny but um yeah i don't know if that answered your question the, the mindset going in i just remember all i remember kind of was that that happening and uh pre-production was great i mean we were still you know as 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 sorry as i was feeling for myself we were in a place where we were still pinching ourselves left and right uh and we were working in los angeles at cello which was just this bitching state-of-the-art you know it's like uh there's like four studios in there with all with neves you know i think maybe there was a mixing room that was like the d studio but and just like Foo Fighters are coming in and out of there, whatever. So we, we had a great time, but it was, it was you know, the times be- before and after the studio were dark. Being there was pretty great. I mean, I don't know if you want to talk about it, but was there like concern about you? I mean... There was concern for the first time ever. Like I, I ended up having to stay in Los Angeles. I stayed here for like a month and a half just because just to finish vocals. And I was seeing uh, a vocal coach and uh, seeing Dr. Sugarman, who's like the singer's uh, doctor out here. He's an ear, nose and throat specialist. You know, I had to like quit drinking, but I couldn't. I mean, it, I was concerned for me. It was the first time that like bandmates and manager and everybody kind of collectively, maybe not at the same time, but maybe the same day called me and said, I love you and I'm worried about you. So there was definitely a concern from, from every part. And that, you know, as, as, you know, in hindsight, as lovely as that is, it only makes you, you know, kind of shakes you awake to a pretty grim reality that you're fucking blowing it. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, you also, you know, I learned how to uh, shake it off and, you know, it's like, can't change what's happened. It's just try and do it better tomorrow, you know, or whatever. So it was, um, but I had a, a lot of uh, concern, but that's translate to love and uh, I couldn't be more thankful for it. You know, did you guys, when the record was, was finished and was coming out, did you guys have concerns in that regard about going back out on tour? Cause tours, tour can be a really dark place if you're not in the, if you're in a bad headspace. You know? Yeah, I think um, um, I, I, the heartache that I was oh, basically like the 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 thing the girl that I was uh, heartbroken over was a girl that I ended up marrying. So we, I think, like once once we started hanging out and like actually being together, like I, it was like love at first sight when I met her. Um, and and so there's some some like I don't even remember specifically what it was, but it was just like this teenage drama shit. Like I just moved to Northern California, and um, that's where I met her. And it became like it's like it was so uh, so clicky and high schooly up there that it basically like tore the whole thing down. And then I left to go make the record. So it was like this, our this girl that I was in love with like it fell apart. We stopped. She stopped calling me, and it wasn't really anything I did. It was like these. Uh, you know, exterior forces at work to, to keep us apart. And it worked for a time. But when we got back together, when we got together, it sort of, you know, I was able to, to really feel uh, myself again. Well, that's good. So going on tour, I think we was back to, uh, you know, being just stoked. And, and that record, you know, with every record we put out, especially in that time period or in that era, um vagrant era alkaline trio it was just like things kept getting bigger and better with every step we took little by little you know um so it was always for the most part tour was never very daunting there were times when it became that way we've had our share of um you know people in and out of rehab and tours meaning different things to different people and um you know stuff that i can't really go into but come and gone but for for that period of time i think we were running mostly on excitement you know and is that, uh, that, that was around that was like going to clubs games with you guys yeah is that the first record that derek's on yeah okay that's the one that's got that what's the name of the song it has that like crazy long like drum roll at the top of it that has the like bell yeah, uh, in it. We've, had, we've had enough yeah i i remember there's like i saw you guys play with derek and i was like fuck that guy's good and then that was like the first that that was the first thing that like it was like the the teaser ad for the record that vagrant had made it was just like oh right that, the yeah, intro of that song, I was like, fuck, that guy's really just throwing the gauntlet down. <laughs> yeah, Derek's no joke. I think there's some drum fills every once in a while in like music communities that like when you hear it, it like stops everybody's conversation. Everybody starts talking about that drum fill for a little while. That's one of them. That's one of them for sure. That's a really good way of putting it. I should remember thinking it's like, man, this is fucking metal. Like it's dark oh, yeah. and cool, you know? Like, yeah, he, uh, um, Derek has so many, like he was uh, like a dirty Hessian metal kid, a punker, but like super into metal and super into all kinds of stuff, like really into Gigi Allen and Misfits and, and shitty, shitty, Shit. I mean, Misfits aren't really that shitty, but, you know, uh, compared to, like, the metal and stuff, you know, Derek's, like, super into Merciful Fate and, and uh, some, like, black metal that I was really into. So a lot of stuff that he turned me on to, but I remember when Derek joined the band, Dan was just like, fuck, because we both had, like, pentagram tattoos and talk, like, we, you know, like, we're both, like, talking about using stage blood and we, we 
we ended up doing a show where we were all we played in Japan. Just cut, we wore all white suits and then just covered ourselves in blood, like theater blood. But there are all these things that poor Dan had to just go along with because the horror kids were like taking over Alkaline Trio. Um, but Derek's Derek's um, you know, his playing, it's just like fuck, man. Anytime he picks up a guitar or like piano, if anything, we have to tell him to like not be as good. We're like, it's it's too good, dude. It sounds like fucking Sebastian Bach up in here. Oh wait. <laughs> What's the what was the response to Good Morning? Like did it, did it just keep going up? Like Yeah, it just kept uh it just kept I mean it, it still does. It's oddly or crazily enough, it's like but especially then it was the band hadn't stopped expanding as far as the the, the size of shows we were playing. I mean, um Good Morning definitely it was like the, we played like the Riviera in Chicago with um that was the first place I ever saw a show. When I was like 11 years old, I saw Public Image Limited there. And then we, it's like a tw- 20, maybe you guys have played, pr- probably played the Riviera in your career. Uh, it's like 2,500, beautiful theater up on the north, up uh, right up there uh, by Wrigley. Mm-hmm. No, I think we played there with, we opened for the Descendants there a couple of yeah, years ago. That was at the Riv. So, um, so yeah, it's a, it's a big place. I mean, the, Aragon is right down the street, the Aragon Brawl Room, which is like, I saw the Ramones there. It holds like 5,000 people. Is the uh, and that, that was during good. That was during uh, Crimson. We played the Aragon. Is the Aragon the one that's an old vaudeville theater? That, There's um, that's the Riviera. The, the oh. uh, Aragon Ballroom is an old ballroom. Okay. The theater is the Riviera. And that's a beautiful old, old you know, it's a big, huge theater with the balcony and everything. Uh, Aragon cool. is a big flat. It sounds like shit in there, but uh, Green Day did a, did a live MTV thing there. Um, it's a famous spot. I mean, it's like uh, the, you know, the biggest room before you play uh, United Center or whatever. Oh, wow. Okay. 5,000. I think it's big. Big and cavernous and it's one level. So it just sounds like dog shit. <laughs> but it's an honor to play there. Like I saw Fugazi pl- play there. They did not sound like dog shit, but they also brought in PA. Um, I think it's shellac played. Um, but yeah, it's otherwise it, it's uh, it's a really cool room, especially for a Chicago band to headline and sell out. Um, but like we we're like, OK, we, we're going to go play like a week at Metro from now on. Yeah. Where it sounds really good and uh, everybody can see. So but uh, I, yeah, Aragon, Aragon, I, I'm, I'm sure you guys have played. I, I think we have. I think that was where we played when we, we were open for Weezer. I think that's where that was. That is where that is. That was. Yeah. I got to tell you, man, this seeing you guys, seeing the Alkaline Trio play in Chicago, especially at the Metro is a, is a sight to behold. It's, it's <laughs> just, it, it, your fan, it's just like the, it's not only just like these totally rabid fans, but they're also just filled with such pride. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you know how Boston guys get into like the dropkick Murphys, you know, and they're like, yeah, like real, like proud about it and stuff. Like it's that same sort of like, like, like commitment to to you guys because I think they really feel like they're part of your band. You're like you're part of them and they're part of you. And it's this cool like yeah. symbiotic relationship. It's not like that's anything. Really, ever. Uh, that's really beautifully put, Matt. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty crazy. As many times as as we've done it, and I, I'm you know. Uh, 
I just, it never ceases to like shock. It's like a shock to the system to walk out into that energy at that place every time. It's like, holy shit. Like I knew that this was coming, but I wasn't, it feels like the whole room is like, you know, going up the walls. It's crazy. Um, and I think there is that when we started the band and I think just the way that we came up, I, it, it, it's uh, like a, a gang, you know, or like a, a gang yeah. is a strong, a gang that, that uh, hugs instead of fights. Um, but, it's a non- uh, Nonviolent gang. <laughs> yeah, we're like a, a nonviolent, non-criminal street gang, but we don't go on the street very much. Um, uh, I, I think it's. I think non-criminal is a little blurry, maybe. <laughs> well, not. Uh, it's a victimless crime. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> except, the, except, except when we're hurting ourselves. We're only hurting ourselves, but um, yeah. yeah, it does feel like a, it feels like, um, and I and I think it's because they know that we truly feel like you know, and being from Chicago, there's a pride in and of itself. I think that has a lot to do with it, but I think the kids know that we feel the same way, hundred percent. You know, um, it's just something that it's all it, it's always been that way, and it's something that I'll you know never ceases to amaze us. So. Uh, did you you I, I seem to recall because like we we were really busy at that time too and it just seemed like basically like you guys and all of our other fr- like you know saves and hot rod circuit and everybody it was like everyone's just constantly on tour oftentimes together but it just like my perspective of that time and your guys is it was just like it just kept going and going and going but like was vagrant like did they ever like have any input? Did they ever like talk to you guys in the studio or like anything like that? No. They just let you be you, huh? I don't think they ever even came to the studio. It's so crazy that that's like because that's what everybody has said. Everybody we've talked to has been like, yeah, they just they were just ha- they just let us. They said put make your music and we'll we'll sell it. Yeah, and I think that's really rare, really cool and rare. Yeah, I mean, you know, like you said before, it's like they're uh, you know for all the uh, the I'm sure you have way more stories than I forever. Every bummer situation we found ourselves in, there was like the good ones were so much better and more important, you know. Um, and uh, um, them, you know, like I remember them asking how much they wanted, how much we wanted their input. We were like, honestly, if we can have none of it, that would be great. <laughs> We would like none of your input, um, but you know that we ended up. We would send them songs, and we, you know, obviously they had stuff, you know, picking the single, but that was from a record that was done. I think that yeah, they just let us do our thing. You know, they said as long as you make the best record you can, we'll stay out of your way. That's awesome. Yeah, I, I'm, that's been to a to a T. What everybody we've talked to has said. I know we talk about this a lot, but it's hard to overemphasize how rare it is for a record label to just leave artists alone and trust that they will make the best record they can. They are investing money in your record. They do have a stake in its success, but the Vagrant model really was based on faith in the band. I don't think I realized just how rare that was at the time. So tell me about going into uh, Good Morning. Jerry Finn did that record, right? Yeah. Jerry Finn had mixed From Here to Infirmary. Okay. And I don't know exactly how he got on board with the band. There was a moment in that time when, and I think this is kind of like speaking to Rich's like ambition, where all of a sudden like actual top-notch producer names are starting to get thrown around and I'd like for people to like mix radio singles and then eventually to make records and it was kind of it kind of seemed like he just I mean the, all the like trio was getting really really popular so of course someone like Jerry Finn would want to work with them but it just kind of it, it was kind of like this step outside of the little like punk underground you know to be like oh yeah we're gonna work with I don't know who who else were, was on that table but like to actually like sure. mix I, a radio I, single. I think there was, uh, you know, we had talked to like, I think the Wallace brothers 
um, at some point, like around that time about maybe mixing like a radio single. Um, yeah, I mean, there were, there were names thrown around and yeah, they were, they were like A-list, uh, you know, producers and, and engineers and stuff. And, you know, it was clear that Vagrant was gaining strength, you know, around that time there was, it was, things were just really happening for pretty much for a lot of the bands on the label, you know, it was just like gaining momentum and, you know, and yeah, it was really exciting, but again, and I, I joined sort of in that, in the middle of that period, but it, it all felt very like organic, like all of the, the stuff with, with the trio, you know, there was no, there was no like, you know, one spike in, you know, in popularity or anything like that. It just felt like we were out there on the road, you know, the band had been doing, putting out these records and touring and, you know, doing it pretty consistently. And uh, with, with each record and each tour, it just seemed like more and more people were into it. More people were coming and, you know, we would do videos, you know, we did one video for good morning that got a little bit of, of airtime on like MTV. There was talk of doing a second video, but it never happened. Probably wasn't coming from that, like from that kind of exposure. There was maybe a blurb here and there in like a Rolling Stone or some, you know, some, one of the bigger magazines. But, but yeah, just, we just kept plugging along and these offers and whatever kept rolling in and it just felt like a very steady climb. You, you can't really control that sort of thing. And that we certainly were trying to control it, but I'm glad that it happened that way because you know, it seems like when a band has that, you know, that spike and, you know, goes from jump, jumps a couple steps in terms of popularity, it seems like the fall is a little harder or whatever. It's expected, you know, that there's going to be a, a drop at some point. Yeah, we just just kind of did our thing with Vagrant kind of growing at the same time. Yeah, it just felt like a very natural, organic thing where everybody was kind of helping each other and working together and growing together. Well, what was making Good Morning like? Because... And, and from my perspective on that that record, I was so afraid because I had loved all, all the previous records. I was so afraid to like change the formula. I just didn't want to change the sound, I guess. The formula had changed because there was a new drummer, but I was being really cautious. So my input on that record, there was like one song that I had written the music for. Actually, two songs. One didn't make the record. But yeah, it was, you know, I was just trying to kind of, you know, what would Glenn or Mike have played? What sounds like an Alkaline Trio drum part? And then... And, you know, put my own little spin on it. But it was, you know, I, I was being really cautious. I was the new guy. I was aware of that. And like, I, I, I didn't want to mess anything up. So what's the song on that record that has the really long drum roll intro with the bell in it? That's the we, we've had enough. When I first heard that it was in like a, a vagrant promo or something like that. I was just like, fuck, new trio drummers. Pretty sick. <laughs> just like <laughs> just being being the new guy and being younger at the time. Like there was my, the instinct was, oh, you know, you got to prove yourself. Let's just let's show everybody how good you are or whatever. There's a little bit of that. But it was definitely throttled by like the wants to to make an Alkaline Trio record, make something that sounds like Alkaline Trio. And I was a huge fan of Glenn's drumming. The original drummer had a very interesting style that I always admired. And Mike had a little bit more. He was a little bit more of a straight ahead player, but he was awesome in his own right. So I was trying to yeah honor the other drummers, be respectful to the the, the sound you know that had been established, sound of the band, and also like I said, kind of pick and choose moments. It's pick my battles. Like here's where I, you know this is purely me, and this is just me going for it. It was interesting. It was it was more I, I, more cerebral, I think, than you know create than most like creative things probably should be. It's a little bit more. I went into it with a plan and with some in, you know more intention than just getting in there and seeing what happens. But yeah, the actual recording process was great. Everything was going well. It was like the end of what year did we do that? Two thousand. Two, I guess it probably was that we were there. We went into maybe like November 
of 2002 with the intention of like having it all wrapped up possibly, you know, before, well, before the holidays. I think that was probably the original plan. It wasn't like, oh, we're going to go in the studio for months. So I think we got in there with November in November and uh, we tracked a bunch. I think we, we, we tracked most everything except for Matt's vocals. And it was getting towards the holidays and uh, it was just clear Matt was having trouble. And I, but we got the record done. And yeah, you know, it, it was just the record. We, I might have done some touring prior to it coming out, did the video for We've Had Enough. And yeah, you know, the, the, the record was released. It just received really well. And it, right out of the bat, you know, right out of the gate, there was like more, you know, we were doing interviews, you know, the setup for the record or whatever was uh, was bigger. We were talking to bigger magazines. There were more like, there was like, you know, magazine covers and stuff like that, you know. It's, it's, so yeah, it was clear that things were... <laughs> yeah, all right. I was telling Matt because I, I was a teenage metalhead and when you guys were on the cover of Kerrang! And I was like, what the fuck? Yeah, that was huge for me. Because I, I was I was was a metalhead growing up as well. So to, in the UK, the the lines are a little bit more blurred than they are here. So we did a lot of a uh, lot of festivals that were you know pretty heavily geared way towards the metal side. And a lot of the press we did over there was was for like hard rock and metal magazines. And and that that was awesome. I mean, we were all you know the other guys are fans of you know uh, some metal stuff as well. So it was great. Did you ever play? What's the big metal? Is it Donington? Is that the big? That's yeah. We never did that. Yeah, that might have been a little too too metal, <laughs> too purist. Too, yeah, too much leather for us. I think we hadn't reached our leather phase yet, which we still haven't. But there's you know there's there's time. There's time <laughs> to get that get the Judas Priest thing going. Did you guys tour like a lot on Good Morning? Yeah, I mean I think we went over to the UK. No, knowing how Infirmary had done, now there was like there was expectation, you know, in the states as well. That was I'm, I'm sure a little intimidating to just be like, okay, well we have to. It's the case I guess with any record where you're like we have to outdo the last record or whatever or we want to outdo the last record but yeah i mean it was just it was huge especially in in the uk and in europe the record came out and it just kind of went went nuts so we did a lot of flying back and forth between the states and and the uk and i've got all this stuff archived somewhere but i wouldn't be surprised if we did two uk runs for that record maybe three in the states you know with some canadian shows and whatnot greater europe and and then probably went back to the uk for festivals too you know so it was just yeah flying all over the place i think we may have went to japan at that time maybe australia too so yeah i mean it's just everything it's it's just our world got a lot bigger so it seems like that's just going like a trajectory of going just like up 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 so by the time you guys get to to going in to do crimson which i had forgotten that that's a picture of you on the record cover <laughs> yeah that wasn't that wasn't intentional it's a wonderful record cover because it's so like i don't i want to say like goth dandy kind of like it's just it's <laughs> It's cool. I like it's just such a it's like a, a real stylistic kind of kind of intention. I think it's cool. I've always liked the trio's visual aesthetic. It's like all the t-shirts I was never allowed to wear in high school. The cover of Crimson just really ties the room together for me. Where's Crimson recorded at? Did you say uh, that already? Crimson was recorded at Conway, oh, which is just the it. most gorgeous studio. It's like Pachyderm and Conway are the two like prettiest. Conway's in, in Hollywood, and it's like, have you ever been there, Matt? Mm-mm. Where uh, Dr. Luke makes all the big pop records now. Yeah, like like um, anytime you like pull in the, there's like this private entryway where there's like a parking lot there, and it was like Mary J. Blige just had her fucking, it's like this this um kind of like you know it's all gated off they have big like ivy trees like growing over everything so it's like all 
thrown over and you can't really see that it's there. But when you go in there, it's like three studios that all have big, huge, like picture win or not picture windows, but um, like big floor to ceiling kind of bay windows that uh, look out on this botanical garden. Oh, wow. So pretty and and serene. So working there with Finn, um, I, the, I remember Finn got the Morrissey gig when we were making Crimson. You know what I remember about, a cool thing I remember about Crimson that I, I remember when the dude came in, but it was a buddy of Jerry's who wrote since you've been gone, that ultimately was a Kelly Clarkson song, but was written for Britney. Or some, they were hoping that you know some pop star was going to pick it up, and it turned out to be Kelly Clarkson. And then her for that huge song, but the tone, the guitar, the guitar tone, everything on since you've been gone is ex- the exact guitars as Crimson, because the guy, the guy that wrote it and produced it, what came in to say hi to Jerry, and I was tracking guitars, and he's like, "What the fuck are you guys?" Music. And Jerry like actually went in and he brought him the exact amp, the same amp, the same guitar. I think they used one of my guitars. <laughs> it's the exact guitar tone on since you've been gone. I mean the channel, everything, the same room. <laughs> they did everything. All the guitar is exactly the same as Chris. The rhythm tracks for Chris. Yeah, he did all his work from about there on at that studio. Who was this person? Is that who? Doctor Luke wrote that song. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna say you've been to Conway, but yeah, it's uh, it's the Hit Factory, and it's like cello was like was the first place we worked, but people are in you know different studios and coming and going. It's like Conway. There's a common room that people share there. It's a really cool. I remember um, Rob Zombie was doing the soundtrack for one of his horror movies when oh, we were cool. working. We were working there, and he had all these like tribal. I don't. They were like African or Tibetan, like tr- these tribal drums hanging from the ceiling. And you could see into all the studios these big huge windows like whoever was working in there it's like you, you know you could just walk by and see we could see all these drums hanging and them in the live room it's a really dope studio hmm. really pretty as far as crimson goes it was just i was living in los angeles i felt like the band had a i mean it was just a, a definitely a, a career highlight it's especially you know recording wise and and working with jerry that was the last record we did with jerry and uh it was the best time i ever had in the studio that's awesome It's funny. Sometimes our world collides with proper pop stars. That since you've been gone story is crazy. What was the what was the mindset going into to Crimson? I had sort of shed. I felt more comfortable in the band for sure. So I was no longer concerned with not. I don't want to say I wasn't like concerned with being respectful to the the alkaline trio sound or whatever. I was just more comfortable with the band. We were more comfortable with each other, and we were all kind of we were turning each other on to different bands and stuff like that. We were all get kind of getting into different stuff. So going into that record, it was we took more time working on songs. With Good Morning, I think we had kind of wrote and demoed the songs, you know, maybe in a month or something like that. Whereas with Crimson, it was probably spread out over a couple of three months or something like that. But, you know, we were all open to expanding the sound a little bit. The band had, there were a couple songs. There was one, two songs on Good Morning that had like strings or piano, I think. And there was one song on Infirmary that had a very minor piano part at the at the end of one song. But at, other than that, there, there it had just been guitar, bass, and drums. So going into Crimson, we, yeah, we just kind of, we were like any, you know, whatever works, whatever makes the song better. So some songs were being written, on, uh, were based off piano parts, a lot of augmentation with strings and different kind of instrumentation and more exploratory. Was there any reservation about doing that as far as like, especially after you having been through the face-to-face tour 
where they they were trying to expand their sound and to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So, did you have reservations about that? Did Finn have reservations about it, or anything like that? Or did Vagrant or Rich? And then, what was the actual reaction to the record? Did okay. you get Did you get flipped off when you played the new songs off of Crimson? No, no, not at all. And I mean, not that I saw. I, I'm ho- I hope somebody did, but um, but yeah, there, it's funny. I don't remember ever drawing a. a you know, some sort of uh, comparison between the the tour with Face to Face, you know, or their experience with Ignorance is Bliss and what we were doing at the time. But it was very much the same thing. Stylistically, I don't know. I've never really thought about this, but what we were doing, it, it just might have been a better time for doing that sort of thing. People were more open to the idea. There were a lot of bands at the time that were doing, you know, there was this sort of like, I don't, I don't want to call it goth. I don't want to be disrespectful to, to all the wonderful goth bands, but like there was definitely like some mainstream rock stuff that was that was a little bit more lavish production wise. And that seemed to be where things were going. So I just think it was more appropriate for the time. That wasn't our intention to, to kind of keep up with the times. We were, one of the huge influences for Crimson was the Damned Black Album. That had always been a favorite record of mine. And that was huge, big departure for the Damned at the time with a lot of piano and strings and just, you know, a lot of synth stuff. I mean, the song, the, just the arrangements were were out there. And I had always loved that record. And I think I had turned Matt onto that record on the Good Morning Tour. I know he was into the Damned, but I don't think it was like he might have had one or two records or something at the time. So we listened to that record a lot. And that was definitely an influence on like how to approach the songs for Crimson. And, you know, which was essentially anything goes, like whatever works for the song. And I'm sure there was a concern. I don't remember Jerry ever having any hesitation about uh, the the songs. Um, He came out, we did pre-production in Chicago at our rehearsal spot. We had already done the demos. So when he came out to do pre-production, I think there were some minor changes made to the songs, but I think it was all just arrangement, kind of length stuff, you know, get to the chorus a little earlier or something like that. But we recorded that, like the recorded versions, whatever, the album versions of those songs are pretty close to the demos. We made very few changes. You know, we obviously, we recut you know, all, all the stuff, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing as far as do recording demos ourselves. So, you know, we were, you know, using a lot of MIDI keyboard kind of stuff or whatever. So when we got into the studio, you know, we, we actually had, you know, uh, musicians help us do that stuff. You know, Jerry was friends with Roger Manning, the keyboard player, and he's, he's he was fantastic. I had been a, f- a fan of him. So, yeah, he came in to do all the piano stuff. And, you know, which was awesome because I had done all the piano stuff on the on the demos and I'm I'm an okay keyboardist, but like I couldn't do everything that I kind of had in my head. So when I got to sit down with Roger and, and be like, okay, like here's the demo, this is the part, but like make it, we said, uh, take some Liberace's with it. That was our thing at the studio. So, and then, yeah, he would cut like four or five versions. It's just amazing to have real pro in there doing stuff. But yeah, I don't remember there being too much concern about whether or not trio fans would would be accepting of the 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 kind of shift in in sound and it never seemed to be an issue you know if anything like i said i think it would it was pretty in line with some of the stuff that was happening around then or or some of the stuff that was about to sort of happen you know i I don't remember what was on the on the radio at the time or anything but it did did seem to fall in line with bands like my chemical romance and stuff you know there were these bands coming out that were doing a little bit more it went visually as well but yeah it just it just seemed to to fall in line what was with what was happening in the world at the time did you feel did 
did you feel you guys are older than those bands of that kind of era and did you ever feel like during that time when like my cam was exploding and stuff and it was the whole like hot topic kind of era of punk and emo like did you guys feel like you were getting unfairly like lumped in with some other bands when it was sort of like um i don't think that was I don't think that was so much an issue. I mean, I know just, you know, I can only speak for myself, but I know, yeah, there was a little bit of like, I guess a, a healthy amount of jealousy or whatever when a band that like, we talked to a band or tour with a band and they'd be like, oh, you know, we're huge Alkaline Trio fans or like, I don't know that anybody ever said that they started their band because of Alkaline Trio or, you know, or something like that. But, and they would make this jump in popularity. You know, we weren't really striving to be like a huge band. Right, you know? right. No, yeah. Like, let's stay, just keep it, keep it steady. and. And see what happens, happens. So when a band would sort of make a big, big jump, yeah, I think there was, there were probably times where it was like, oh man, like why them and not us? Like, what's just kind of like, what, what's the formula or some, you know, kind of thinking about that, like just gets in your head sometimes, I guess is what I'm saying. But yeah, there was never any like concern about being lumped in with other bands. I mean, certainly in the UK, you know, what we were talking about with being in uh, Kerrang and stuff, we would see these We'd be in these like whatever top 10 lists of, you know, albums of the year or whatever. And every other band in there would be like some crazy, you know, like a metal band. And it'd be like, well, we have nothing in common with these bands. What are we doing? You know, that was always a little curious. But yeah, it's, you know, it's never was never like a huge deal. But two things, wardrobe related things that were uh, <laughs> that were frustrating to me. I think you're the first person we've talked to in this whole podcast that's talked about wardrobe. But this is great. Well, okay. Yes. Yeah. Let's get into it. So Alkaline Trio with Infirmary, they, they decided that they were going to gonna wear suits. And at that time, it was like, they were kind of like baggy suits and... Like, thr- like thrift store suits, kind of? Yeah, but more or less. I mean, they just, they weren't like fitted suits. It wasn't like mod suits, skinny tie stuff, but it wasn't uh, David Tuck head suits. So, but anyways, it, you know, that the concept was there. There was a concept for how the band was going to present themselves. I think they just hadn't really figured out how to do it yet. And the band had already had established like an aesthetic thanks to Heather who did all the artwork for the band. So there had already been this sort of spooky aesthetic, morbid humor kind of stuff associated with the band. And when I joined, I was very much into the sort of taking the aesthetic thing a little bit further. So with Good Morning, it was like more suits and stuff and started to get a little bit more into like, we were just experimenting with stuff. So it was like buying a lot of stuff. We, we'd go to like New York, we'd go to St. Mark's. And go to go to trash in Bodville and buy all the yeah. That's what I was just about to say. I <laughs> love that place. Yeah, so you know we were kind of experimenting experiment with that stuff, but we wanted sort of a unified you know visual like an image on stage. So when we got to Crimson, just in going along with like the the, the music and also again you know going back to the Damned, Dave Vadian was like the original vampire punk. We were all Misfits fans, and so that was definitely kind of in there. But Vadian had this sort of refined the refined look, you know. Where wearing capes and stuff like that. And these kind of frilly shirts and almost Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know, kind of London Victorian look. And so that's what we went for with Crimson. And it was around this time that black and red had, had been the sort of decided the, the color palette for Alkaline Trio and that had been established for a long time. So Green Day, I think there's, I don't know what record was, was going on around the time, but they started touring and wearing these suits on stage. And at that time, I think it was primarily black suits with like red ties. And I made a couple cracks in interviews people were like oh you know would you ever want to tour with Green Day or whatever that would you know question like that and I would be like well they took our wardrobe on tour instead you know I'd make a crack like 
And I thought it was funny. I mean, there was no real, we weren't really upset about it or even thought that they, that was like an intentional thing, but you know, it, it made for a good gag. And I, I may have said it one too many times in interviews because I know that it got back to them. <laughs> we have yet to tour with them. <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of a weird thing that again, you know, it wasn't a real big deal, but it obviously if I was making jokes about it. It was in my head somewhere. Were you playing drums in a suit jacket? There were times I would come out in wear a jacket for like the first song. Yeah. Okay, that makes sense. Take that off. I mean, I, I had to, you know, it was like uh, Peter Chris with with Kiss. You know, he wasn't wearing platform boots playing playing drums. But in what? Fun. <laughs> so, did that just blow your mind? Yeah. I'm, no, I'm yeah, or, or, or crush your dreams. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Playing drums in platforms doesn't sound real. Possible? Like, real good. Yeah, it does sound like a real good <laughs> idea. You know, I would kind of wear a little bit more modified. I didn't like wearing ties on stage either because it was just felt really constricting playing drums. So eventually I think I just came out in, you know, some like pinstripe pants and, you know, like a black shirt or something. And as we started getting towards Crimson and stuff, you know, things were evolving and it was a little bit more like, again, trash, trash and vaudeville, like bondage pants, you know, rings and weird colored stripes and louder colors and stuff like that. So the second wardrobe related thing, incident, if you will, was we toured with with my Chemical Match, and they had just they were just kind of starting to blow up, but we were opening for them. I mean, it was clear that they were they were the more popular band. But on that tour, I've never told this story publicly, so this is an ex- a hot exclusive. On that tour, I was wearing I had bought a priest shirt from from like a you know church supply company with a you know the white collar. And I was wearing that on stage and Gerard kept commenting on it. Like, oh man, that is such a good look. Like, I wish I could do that. And one day he said, he asked me if he could borrow the shirt to see like how it fits. I had had it like uh, custom made, I think, like, or at least tailored. So I was like, oh, well, this is, you know, what size this is or whatever. So, you know, go ahead and, and check it out. And if you like it, I can give you the contact for the company that made it for me or whatever. He wore it on stage that night. And it was like in magazines the next day, the punk rock priest. You know, and, and and I never got it back from him. He never, he never, he never gave, gave it, back. it back. Never gave it back. So literally, he literally, took, literally took my wardrobe on tour, and yeah, and it became his thing. I mean, it it got a lot of attention, and again, like these headlines were like, oh, the preaching punk rock and stuff like that, you know. And I was like, God damn it! Like of all, you know, I tell you what, going through an airport when you wear a pre shirt, oh, it's gotta be, gotta be a breeze. It's a it's a beautiful <laughs> thing. Barely any any security checks, you know. You just kind of breeze on through, but. Um, um, anyways, yeah, that's the only thing that I was really like upset about. And I've never spoken about it. And it seems super petty and silly right now. But at the time I was like, all right, dude, you, you stole my shirt, like literally. <laughs> and like, you took my, that was my thing. I was like trying to cultivate this, this image. And that's uh, now, I'm, you know, I can't, I can't wear it. I can't be the, I don't know what the, uh, what a lesser post would be in the, in the church world. I'm trying to think what would be to the priest uh, well, I'd be an altar boy but they wouldn't they wouldn't they wear wouldn't be wearing that shirt. you wouldn't wear, altar, wouldn't be wearing that shirt. wearing airport wearing altar boy robes you might I, get- you know what I would just be an asshole that's that's all <laughs> if I was if I kept wearing that shirt I would just look like an asshole so anyways so yeah that's the first time I've ever st- spoke about that publicly and Gerard I love you buddy but I want my shirt back <laughs> but, yeah I want back. a shirt that I can't fit into anymore so <laughs> There was this occasional trifecta of being on Vagrant, managed by Rich, and booked by Ellis that some of us had. 
the trio even tried it out for a bit. So were you guys, because I know you you guys worked with Rich and a manage, he managed you guys for a minute. Mm-hmm. That, did that happen before or after you guys signed the Vagrant? Way after. Way after? I mean, way after in the time span that we were at Vagrant, yeah. Okay. Because we had, yeah, it, uh, the short answer is later. Like it was maybe three records. We, we were there for probably a year or two before Rich took over managing us and it was kind of at least for us it was sort of like uh, in the interim between managers we had rich doing it okay. because as as the label owner it's a bit of a conflict of interest regardless of the relationship or the trust or whatever when you know rich yeah. and i always had a great relationship and i trusted him it's like even to do it you know um temporarily uh is could be potentially you know things could get fucked up um very quickly in a short amount of time so there you know him trusting him to manage our band while owning the label at all i think speaks to the trust and and love we have for rich yes same and like i always tell people it wasn't really a problem until it was you yeah know? <laughs> and that's, that's, i was just gonna say the exact same thing and i didn't want to sound uh pert about it but yeah it wasn't no, a problem it was yeah we, we we've all been very everybody that i've talked to has been very open about because everyone has a lot of a lot of love for the label and but there are you know there's times that were better than others you know oh yeah absolutely when that when that record came out was there ever any talk of, of you guys re-signing to vagrant or were you always just kind of like okay that chapters, you know, we did our three records and we're going to try and see what how bigger we can take this thing. Uh, it wasn't so much about being bigger because we, Vagrant, you know, we especially when they did that deal with Interscope. So we had a lot of, like, Jimmy Iovine's blessing on, on so many things and a lot of his money or Interscope's money behind, uh, you know, behind the project that we didn't really think it could get bigger. Like, we figured, you know, if, if there was going to be a time that we would explode and become a huge band, that would that happened, you know, like, at least on, the, on, on that sort of, like... And even the, the radio thing and the video thing, we always gave it our all, but we didn't really, you know, invest so too much, like, hope or, you know, we didn't, we didn't spend any sleepless nights worrying about if our song was going to be on the radio or not you always hoped for it but it was like we were fine we've been doing it we've been doing fine without it you know and so you know at that point i think we'd we'd burnt the vagrant bridge i I think rich and i had enough had a couple big blowouts and enough things were said that we were done so did it end acrimoniously or was it just kind of like you know like Dude, this is just we gotta move. We gotta move on. Uh, the latter. It was acrimonious at, at points. You know, it was definitely like, um, you know, it got very heated. But um, you know, at the end of it, it was just sort of like I don't want to stay pissed off forever. Like I, um, I, you know, Rich and I like made up. I remember he came up and shook my hand at um, what's that? Sk- oh, Skate Surf out in uh, Jersey. And Rich came up to me, and it was the first time that we'd seen each other in a in a long time. But we were leaving Vagrant, or we had already had just left Vagrant, and we just got divorced. And he came over, and I remember his family was there because he shook my hand, and I said, you know, good to see you, Rich. Um, you know, kind of, there's no hard feelings or whatever. And I smiled, and he turned to walk away and got nailed by a golf cart and broke his pelvis. <laughs> and got no. like, flying through the air, and... I'm pretty sure they figured that I had something to do with that. <laughs> that you took out a hit on him? <laughs> well, yeah, with Satan. Yeah, okay, I see. You know, like, they were, like, packing up the kids, getting ready to go to church, and then Devil Boy just sent a golf cart your way. Bam! Yeah. <laughs> um, which, I don't know what possessed me. Um, but, but uh, of course, I didn't will the golf cart. It was just, uh, you know, an unfortunate thing that happened. But luckily, he wasn't killed. 
Um, it was, uh, but it was, you know, it was sort of like, I think we, we'd gotten in a couple of fights that were exhausting enough that we're just like, dude, just you go and I'll leave and it's all good. So it yeah, was pretty I, like, pre- we were both, I think, pretty over it. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's like, what person wants a band on their label that doesn't want to be there? Right. You'd be surprised. Well, I, I, as I said that, I'm like, well, actually, I'm the one I was just talking about. We ended up fulfilling our, our records, but it was, I, I think it was by the third one where we were trying to get out of it. I think there was there was a chatter about you guys trying to to leave. Yeah, we were talking about going to Fat. So that's yeah. that's that's like um, you know. But of course, Mike was offering us just way too much money, and um, uh, which was you know very tempting. And it's like it's you know what we were saying before about getting bigger or whatever. It was like we we kind of felt like you know we'd kind of maxed out. And what difference does it make what label we're on as long as people know a new record's out or whatever? Um, but I think it, it, what, at the end of the day, everything happens for a reason, and I'm glad that Crimson came out on Baker and, and that things worked out the way they did apart from the golf cart <laughs> i'm glad I, I i remember i remember that being because we were still working with with rich at the time and i, I remember it just being like like this is you know kind of like like when you have two friends that like break up or something and then you have to be oh, yeah. like and it's like i'm not i'm not getting in the middle of this which is no yeah because I, I mean we were all like touring together and do, like yeah. you guys are caught in a very like ugly divorce like oh god mom and dad are at it again yeah i was just like yeah yeah you guys you guys sort this out yeah this is grody this is icky we're gonna go to the cubs game yeah exactly rich was good about that with me too when we stopped like we never got into like big fights about anything really i mean i got mad at him i'm sure he got mad at me but like years after not working together for a long time i saw him at south by southwest and i was like oh hi and he's like uh, basically he was just like are we fighting i was like nope we're good <laughs> just like moving yeah, on good like that i mean for all our shit it's like he he was um you know uh at the end of the day he was a grown-up and i think that's all we can ask anybody you know more than more than enough so at least from our our thing i think it was um you know it was amicable uh, eventually that's good did you have any other like tight relationship with anybody there like cohen or or wayne or actually um cohen i've been working with with blink oh really Um, what's he he was our he's our a and r guy at um yeah at our label and and until recently but cohen has been doing he did the last two blink records that i played on that i I wrote with them and played on but but um yeah john john was our a and r that's so wild is that strange it was initially not in necessarily a bad way just just it was just kind of it was odd you know but um there isn't like kind of and again not in a bad way like there's things with like getting asked to be in blink is odd you know like in a really good way and uh you know kind of all around with everything with that band it's like um playing the texas rodeo that's odd but let's you know (laughs) it was a great time and uh but you know it's like uh with all things blink it's just like there's all there's a surprise around every corner and john was one of them i was like holy shit <laughs> and i remember the guys kind of being like how do you two know each other because we were just talking about you know get like it took like two seconds for us to be chatting like old friends you know yeah it's, it's that's wild i had no idea that's awesome i'm glad well i'm glad he's doing doing good yeah he's he's doing great so it's been cool working with john do you get that that thing i was talking about with like seeing the trio play in chicago and that kind of connection do you does do you have that with blink too as far as like um just because the band's so big you know what i mean like is it is it harder to to really re- reach people 
does that i feel like i'm being really abstract and i don't because i don't no 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 you're not 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 at all and i I totally understand what you're asking and at first it was i I think that once people got and again like it's so odd i don't know how like when they asked me to be in the band i was like are you guys fucking high like what are you talking about like you really think i could come in here and play take tom's spot and we're just gonna make a blink record and go on tour and it's just gonna be like nothing happened and you know that's not something i really asked them but in not so many words i was like are you guys sure about this like this is fucking crazy talk but um they were right and it's it that's exactly what happened and i think once i learned kind of my place in it and like especially the fans perspective of it their perception of it like instagram it's like you you drive yourself nuts like reading all the mean shit that people wrote on there but for the most part people were really kind and excited and once i had that knowledge and that confidence that kind of grew in a very fast and again odd but beautiful way that connection and the ability to do it it didn't seem like the band it's still it's a huge band but i i still feel close to the crowd i still see kids that i like it's just in a much bigger room but it's not that much different and i don't mean like the the crowds in chicago or like the thing you were talking about in metro that is something that it's i guess it is exclusive to chicago but there is that the opportunity to reach kids with blink it's just a it's a little further of a reach and it's one that it took me a a little while to get a hold of but uh it's still there it's like somehow it's there this is a this is a two-part question one is do you do you get a pocket of i assume you see alkaline trio shirts at blink shows from time to time but i just wondered if there's ever like a pocket of kids in, in front of your side of the stage that are wearing trio shirts and then the other thing is has you being in Blink drawn more people's attention? Because like Blink's so big and it's in the same way as like Green Day, where it's kind of like a gateway drug for punk rock for people. You know, where it's like some 14-year-old's first punk band is Blink-182. But then they're like, oh yeah, the are. Yeah, I mean, there's so many kids that we meet that we do meet and greets every day. And it's so many kids for a show every night. That's that's a really special thing. You know what I mean? To be able to do that. And then like, but do you see people going, oh, wait, the guitar player blinks in this other band that's like way, like, you know, similar style, you know, it's punk rock, but it's like, like way darker and kind of, cool, you know, like just sort of like, a, I don't know, more maudlin, I guess is the word that came to mind. Like, it's just like, it's, it's got, it's got such a like stylistically, like, like it's, it's just way darker than, than Blink is, I feel like. And yeah, wonder if you get people like going back and being like, oh, I got to check out this guy's stuff too. And if you get a lot of like trio love there. Yeah. So for both questions, yes, there are kids in trio shirts on my side of the stage almost every night. And a lot of, I mean, the longer I've been in the band, it's like, I, I, can't, I can no longer tell which are converts and wh- who came, you know, like, because uh, there are like some diehard trio fans that'll come to sh- shows, plural, on, on the tour. But there's always a group of kids. Whenever we do the meet and greet, there's always a couple kids with alkaline trio tattoos. Nice. So I feel like the, those kids are there uh, in person on a nightly basis. But I, I think that also uh, I've just had a lot of kids like on Instagram or like on the Blink thing say, or on the Alkaline Trio uh, on Alkaline Trio's Instagram you know I saw you with Blink and now I love Trio like or you know that that also happens uh, just as much as the nightly Trio um, crew that's awesome that makes me happy cool man I'm very lucky I don't know about you guys but that story warms my heart I really don't give a fuck if you like Blink-182 or not but the fact of the matter is if Skiba being in that band gets more people into Alkaline Trio 
I see that as a net positive. That's it for this episode of Vagrant Records, 25 Years on the Streets. Our next episode, we will begin to tell the story of Saves the Day, so be sure to subscribe to the podcast and rate it on iTunes. This podcast was produced by Jesse Cannon for Muse Formation and executive produced by Fred Feldman and Andrew Ellis. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again for the next episode.